This is the Isinkwa Podcast, and you're breaking bread with Duka Mushesh. The Apostle Paul warns Christians against the tradition of men. Each person has their own idea as to what this term may mean, usually defining it by what lies outside the limits of one's own culture. In looking into what Paul may mean and how Jesus reacts to it, there are interesting considerations that appear standard across cultures. We will look at an exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees outside a cornfield on the Sabbath day as the main arc while making reference to key passages and concepts which explain perspectives contained within the main story. I will not necessarily determine the meaning of Jesus' declaration in Matthew 12 verse 8, that he is Lord of the Sabbath, but the exchange has value in and of itself in allowing us to interrogate the position of the Pharisees. Jesus' disciples are criticized by Pharisees for eating corn in a field on the Sabbath, Jesus begins to pick apart their argument by making three points before slam-dunking them with this famous line, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He comments in another place, Matthew 15 from verses 1 through 20, on the abuses by the Pharisees in the name of tradition and how it speaks to their religious hypocrisy. A modern example of this is the KJV-only camp, which asserts that only the King James Version is appropriate material for salvation, even for those who don't speak English. Being able to move from principle to policy, and to iterate and reiterate policy on an as-needed basis, seems to be the only way to stay true to the principle through changing times and circumstances. Principle and policy share a symbiotic relationship that should be strengthened by 1. Teaching principles regularly, 2. Teaching the reasons for traditions, and 3. Openly and regularly reviewing policies for their continued efficacy. Otherwise, serious damage can be done to those whose well-being relies on good principles informing good policies. The discourse in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 1 through 8, also in Mark chapter 2 verse 23 through 28 and Luke chapter 6 verse 1 through 5, concerns an exchange between Jesus and some Pharisees. Jesus and his disciples wandered through the cornfields on one Sabbath and decided to eat while passing through. Nearby, the Pharisees comment that his disciples are breaking the Sabbath by not abiding by its laws. Jesus quips about David's own flouting of Old Testament law, the priests who work on Sabbath, and the failure of the Pharisees to discern what is of true value. Then, he signs off with his signature statement, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Christ's words are usually taken to be a criticism of the Sabbath itself, or of its onerous requirements. The reality is, perhaps, a little more nuanced. Exists a rabbinic tradition of interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures codified in writing as the Talmud. Multiple Talmuds exist, the most prevalent today being the Babylonian Talmud. 
Its nature and composition are unimportant for this episode, but its relevance to this discourse is paramount. In a nutshell, the Jewish approach to the interpretation of God's will and or word relies as much on the text as it does on the traditions and debates of interpretation. The same might be said for many Christian Orthodox, Protestant and Pentecostal churches today. The Jews had, by the change of the era, developed multiple and often contested schools of interpretation and religious practice. The apocryphal books of Jubilees and Maccabees demonstrate textual evidence for the types of rules and limitations that the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, etc. applied to concepts of proper religious piety. Many of these dealt with the Sabbath, its nature and relationship to human work, rest and being. This way of life is called the Halakha. It encompasses rules and policies the religious leaders use to enforce conformity, though among the various schools of rabbinic thinking were differing degrees of stringency and tolerance. As an example, the priestly schools of Halakha would define a Sabbath day's journey, the distance one was allowed to travel on Sabbath, as 1,000 cubits, or 457 meters, whereas non-priestly schools of thought would allow even double that. Many such halakhic laws exist within society in Jesus' time, even though the final composition of the Babylonian Talmud, for example, is dated to about the 3rd to the 6th century AD. Dating texts with historiographic complexity are incredibly difficult. Methods of dating can include comparisons of historical context and allusion, language use, forms and concepts, and relative dating. However, it is clear that the oral traditions which inform the Talmud and therefore the Halakhic law share close parallels with what is documented in the Synoptic Gospels. It is imperative that we see the Jewishness of Jesus in order to more fully understand his words. In fact, his actions give us a greater indication of his location in Judaism. His ministry was of a rabbi. He was baptized by John the Baptist. He taught parables. He has conversations and disputes with the authorities of the temple and teachers of the law concerning biblical law. And he had disciples. These are characteristics of an adept rabbi in Jesus' day. Concerning his parables, they share a literary history with the Talmuds, Babylonian and Palestinian, whose oral tradition parallels many aspects of Jesus' teachings. A particular Talmudic parable speaks of a king who invited guests to a wedding feast to which some prepared themselves and came immediately to assist with the outstanding logistics. Others scoffed at the lack of preparation and went about their work in the fields. Suddenly, the king called for his guests to enter the feast. The early birds began feasting while the working guests arrived hurriedly in their filthy clothing and were kept outside to watch the festivities within. This parable and many more demonstrate strong similarities with biblical parables in terms of theme, style, motif, composition and the use of diction. There is little doubt that Jesus both influenced and was influenced by these familiar parabolic traditions. Cornfields form an important backdrop for this debate. 
Within the halakha, there are limitations concerning activities that cannot be carried out on Sabbath. These are called the 39 milakot, forbidden categories of activity. One milakha in particular, called kotzie, or reaping, involves separating a plant from its source of growth, like picking an ear of corn from the stalk. Another milakha, dosh, or threshing, prohibits removing the edible form from its natural casting, like removing grain or corn kernels from the cob. A prototypical example of transgressing halakhic laws on Sabbath would be to walk into a cornfield, take an ear of corn, and eat it straight off the cob. In halakhic terms, this is a clear violation of the law on Sabbath. Could this prove that Jesus' disciples broke the Sabbath by doing so? While rife debate remains within scholarly circles concerning the status of the Sabbath compared to Christ's declaration of his lordship over it, the implications of his nonconformity to Pharisaic expectations and eschatological imperatives that drive Jesus' behavior, I would like to look at this from a slightly different angle. The footnotes in any good study Bible points these links out. Yahweh's economy, as dictated by Mosaic law, had provisions for the vulnerable. The Jacobian definition of pure religion in James chapter 1 verse 27 emphasizes social welfare and moral purity. This is interesting because most, if not all, prophets in the Hebrew Bible speak against moral deficiencies in the Israelite and Judean people, but only some speak against deficiencies in cultic piety. The form of religious observance is not as central to Yahwist spirituality as is moral purity. In looking out for the poor and marginalized, the legal corpus of ancient Israel included the following two provisions. In Leviticus 23 verse 22, it reads, and I quote, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And also, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 24 and 25, I quote, When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Close quote. On one hand, the well-off among the Jews were to leave a substantial portion of their field unharvested, nor were they allowed to collect any gleanings from the harvest that was mistakenly dropped on the ground. On the other hand, unfettered access was given to all the poor to enter these fields and eat their fill. They could not harvest the landowner's crops, but they could have a portion that would function as their universal basic sustenance. Ideally, no vulnerable Israelite or foreigner should have gone hungry in Israel, even if they were homeless. So here's the rub. What was Jesus' economic status? By his own admission, Christ decried the fact that he had nowhere to lay his head when even foxes had dens and birds their nests. To add insult to injury, 
Judas stole from the already meager kitty. So Jesus was definitely poor. On that basis, he should have been able to freely enter any field of his choosing and eat. Considering the poor were not allowed to gather the grain for themselves the day before, to prevent them from entering the field on Sabbath would be to condemn them to hunger the entire day, Friday evening and Saturday morning and afternoon. No time conditions were present in the instructions given in Leviticus chapter 23 verse 22 and Deuteronomy 23 verse 24 to 25. Therefore, the limitation imposed by the Pharisees is not biblical but traditional. In simple terms, their religious traditions hindered the poor's God-given freedom to be fed and satisfied. Literally, God-given. Some argue that the limitations expressed in the Sabbath command in Exodus chapter 34 verse 21 include the cessation of work even during plowing and harvest seasons and that this rest extends to plant life. Both the priestly and non-priestly halakhic traditions held to the cessation of work, including reaping, quite stringently. If one were to walk in a field, it may be seen as acceptable only to pick up grain from the ground, but that would have already started the process of decaying. Others maintain that plucking grain to eat or curing a disease, which is not life-threatening on Sabbath, was impermissible under the halakhic law. However, it is clear that there was neither uniformity nor normativity in the interpretations of the biblical commands. Similar scenes dominate news cycles and social discourse today about how religious piety, especially that based on tradition rather than a thorough and critical reading of the biblical or religious text, denies political and socio-economic freedoms to the marginalized. Even in the secular world, when these freedoms are enshrined in a sovereign nation's constitution, public leaders and entities can and do stifle access and hinder progressive action on behalf of the neediest. There is something fundamentally wrong when the spirit of a core principle is counteracted by the policies set in place by its custodians. Of course, the issue of the limitations of individual and institutional freedoms will always be measured in relation to its effect on the freedoms of others. There aren't absolute provisions which ignore the very realities of daily experience. But it is another thing altogether when those with power, status or authority interpret the law for their benefit at the exclusion of their constituency. A common example of a policy taken beyond the purview of the principle is the mandated use of the King James Version in some congregations. By mandated, I don't mean your membership to that church would be revoked if you choose another version or translation to use as your primary Bible, but that the King James Version is seen as superior to all other Bibles. What has been dubbed the KJV-only movement espouses the 1611 edition of the King James Bible. There were numerous editions before and after it, and rejects any attempts to update it for the purposes of accuracy or general comprehension. While there may be merit to the argument on both sides of the aisle, the most ironic part of this stance is that the King James Version was created for a particular purpose. 
Daniel B. Wallace goes on to quote the preface of the 1611 authorized version, as it was the authorized version of the Church of England, which denounced the Rames Dewey version thusly, and I quote, The Catholics have the purpose to darken the sense that although they must needs translate the Bible, yet by the language thereof it may be kept from being understood. But we desire that the scripture may speak like itself, that it may be understood even by the very vulgar. Close quote. In modern English, the team of translators denigrated the work of Catholics, whom they accused of translating the biblical text only enough to meet the minimum requirements of translation. The Catholics, these translators claimed, wanted to create a dependency on the clergy for interpretation. Instead, this committee sought to translate the King James Version into the simplest language available so that Joe Soap on the street corner could understand it clearly. Yet, the King James Version's language today is cryptic for most who open its pages. It creates a dependency on those who have a better command of the English language and, thereby, offers them authoritative power of interpretation of the text. As stated earlier, there are KJV-only advocates who believe not just that the King James Version is the best English version of the Bible, but that it is the best Bible, period. Some go so far as to insinuate that should a Russian find the gospel, his spiritual life would be best served if he learned English so that he could read the KJV. The original intent of the first translators is undone through this insistence that only the 1611 edition be used for any robust study of Christian doctrine. And yet, the policy of using the King James Version as a standard, which was the position of the Church of England at the time, was an expression of, among other things, a desire to make the Latin, Greek, Hebrew and Aramaic text fully accessible to any Englishman who happened across it. This suggests to me that there is a danger in codifying norms without a thorough understanding of their origin. Traditions and rituals help us navigate life through symbolic interactions with abstract concepts. They help to concretize fleeting ideas and help us put them into practice. There are times when the overzealous, the well-intentioned, the uninformed and or the downright greedy are given the reins of power and perpetuate inherited norms to maintain the status quo. But this can come at the expense of the most vulnerable in a fluid and dynamic world. The message of the Bible seems to me to be that we should always interrogate the efficacy of our policies, practices, norms and standards and reorient them around their relevant principles whenever they start to go out of whack. We have a duty to regularly revisit and re-evaluate the relevance of our corporate and congregational culture and to adjust it accordingly to best express our ethos. 
Like a ship that sails in the boundless sea, we intermittently check our true north, correcting our course as the currents creep beneath us. We must be cognizant that stubbornly maintaining the direction we chose on the shore will not deliver us to our destination. If we remain obstinate, we risk the lives of all who are on board and under our command, condemning them to an unnecessary ill-fate. In conclusion, by searching a little deeper into the cultural milieu of the ancient Israelite and the Jew alike, perhaps we can heed Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. I read from the New International Version. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We can all too easily fall into the same trap as generations past. We should no longer use piety to mask our lack of morality. Rather, let us stay true to our true north, even if it means letting go of traditions which do not serve our needs anymore. It's been lovely breaking bread with you. Live longer and may your tribe increase.